This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Welcome to Knowledge at Wharton. I'm Angie Bassierney. If you're a music lover like me, your collection has probably evolved from hundreds of records organized in alphabetical order on a shelf to a carefully edited digital library that you backed up on an external hard drive to the 2020 version, a random list of songs that you listen to on Spotify or some other streaming device. Technology hasn't just changed the way that we use goods and services, it's changed the way that we own them. What consumers used to think of as mine is now ours as we move into a shared economy where everything from car rides to clothing has become less of a coveted item and more of an experience. But marketers know that there's value in psychological ownership. When customers form an emotional attachment or self-identify with a product, that sense of mine keeps them coming back for more. So as we shift away from owning material things, how can marketers hold on to these benefits? Some answers can be found in a new study titled Evolution of Consumption, a Psychological Ownership Framework. It appears in a recent issue of the Journal of Marketing. In this paper, the authors take a look at these changes in consumption, explain three major trends in marketing, and then offer some strategies for marketers to use. With me today to talk about this study are two of its authors, Dr. Deborah Small, who's a marketing and psychology professor here at Wharton, and Dr. Carrie Morwich, a marketing professor and distinguished faculty scholar at Boston University's Questrom School of Business. Dr. Small, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having us. And Dr. Morwich, also, thank you for being here with us. Thanks, Angie. It's a pleasure to be here. This is such a timely topic for marketers. What made you guys want to study it? What questions were you trying to answer? I'll start with you, Dr. Small. There's this very classic and robust finding in the science of decision-making known as the endowment effect. The endowment effect is the fact that people value things more when they own them than they would value that same thing if it were not in their possession. For instance, if you had a fancy bottle of wine in your possession, the amount of money you would require be willing to give it up is much higher than the amount of money you'd be willing to pay to acquire it if you didn't own it. So we've understood for a long time that ownership takes on this sort of special psychological significance. But much of this evidence was based on very traditional possessions, right? So very tangible items that a person had all to themselves. Um, For instance, maybe a coffee mug or something like that. So what really kind of started this this paper was our musings about all of these new business models and new technologies that are moving away from these traditional forms of ownership. So you you provided some examples, Angie. So you know, rather than owning my own uh, car or bicycle, I might participate in ride sharing or bike sharing. Before I had all these bookshelves filled with books and CDs and photo albums, and now I can store these things virtually. We used to keep all of our medical records and tax records and bank account records. All of that personal data was stored in a filing cabinet and in physical files in our homes. Um, Now that stuff, that storage is mainly in the cloud and and kind of an intangible form. Um, So these advances are are no doubt fantastic and provide a lot of value to consumers. Um, But we found that they're missing some of these signature markers of, of, of ownership. So tangibility, I can, so I can still experience music, but I don't have a physical album. Permanence, whereas I, when I use a rideshare, I don't expect this long-term relationship uh, with that car. Um, so we wrote this paper as a way to try to deepen our understanding of what is at stake here from a psychological ownership perspective. 
That's very true. I can't tell you the number of times I've heard people say about newspapers or books, I have to touch it. I have to turn the pages. I have to smell it. Um, so you're definitely, you're definitely on track about that. Dr. Morwich, do you have anything to add to what she has said? I do. I, I, and there'd be more personal examples. So I remember in graduate school, I would go to the library. If I had to read an article, I would photocopy it. I would write all over it. Those articles became like a treasured resource for me to go to in a filing cabinet in my office. And I would go back to the same document each time and think, look at my notes. And there was a time when I moved my office and I got rid of all of that and recycled it. And it felt like a loss of the self. And I use PDFs now. I haven't been to my library on campus for since I've arrived at Boston University, but everything's available to me digitally. But there's something about that digital copy that I don't care as much about. I don't feel emotionally invested in the PDFs that I store in the cloud in the way that those kinds of tangible pieces of paper felt for me. And the, the sort of second personal example to me is when I was younger, I was a DJ and I have thousands of records in my house. And those records, I haven't played them for a while. I've got a young child and don't have time to do that. But I, I still look at them and they're a marker of my identity and part of my past. And the music that I listen to now is no more or less important to me, but, but it somehow feels different when, when I close my laptop, it all disappears. Um, or when I, you know, it's all being streamed from Apple. And so if, if I don't, there's no, there's no permanence there to any of that kind of content. And that kind of exchange that we're making is in many ways extraordinarily convenient. I can be on the beach, I can pull down whatever song I want to listen to, whatever book I want to read. But at the same time, it feels like we're losing something, this tangibility or this um, feeling of mine. And so our paper was really trying to understand and explore what results from that absence. So we have all these kinds of advantages from our new kinds of models of consumption. Things are easier to acquire, they're cheaper, they have less environmental impact, but at the same time, there's a sense that we don't own anything anymore, or the, the number of things that we do own are much fewer. And so we wanted to use this paper as a way to delve into that kind of phenomena that we're all experiencing right now and understand its impacts. That's very true. It, it, there's almost a sense of disposability when, when you don't have a tangible object in your hand. So in, in the paper, you identify two important changes in consumer behavior, and I'd, I'd like for you to break this down for me. The first one is a change from legal ownership of goods to what you're describing as legal access of goods. And the second one is that material possession is being replaced with experiences. Dr. Small, can you run through those for us and, and make us understand what that means? Sure, yeah, and to be clear, we're not the first to, to notice these, these changes. Um, so there's been much discussed about um, access-based consumption, sometimes it's referred to as liquid consumption, um, which essentially kind of distributes or spreads out property rights uh, across uh, hundreds, even thousands of consumers. And so as uh, Dr. Morridge mentioned, this is, this is sort of very convenient for consumers. It's cheaper. Um, it's less of a commitment. They can kind of try out different things without sort of 
a big expensive purchase that they have to that you know that um, they expect for a long time and so there's a lot of like freedom there for consumers um, but they also lose a lot of control over the good because it's not just theirs anymore um, and it's also this very temporary and sort of short-lived so they 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 are, are less prone to develop psychological attachments and feel these kind of connections uh, to their to their goods and so these are kind of critical aspects of psychological ownership the the, the um, kind of the ability to control things the development of a relationship over time and so the feeling that something is mine is you know is, is a is a function of believing I have I'm in control and and expect maintain something for a long time um, so that's the first dimension legal ownership to legal access uh, the second is is um, the shift from more material uh, consumption to more experiential consumption. So um, as, as we've discussed, we're, we're kind of moving away from these kind of physical goods um, in, many, for, in many categories, right? Um, much more to things that, that, that we merely experience, right? Or they're um, kind of digital or ephemeral in, in some way. And so kind of the key threat to psychological ownership here is the lack of tangibility. tangibility. So um, that is like a signature marker of a possession. It's like something that you can see and touch and and um, like it stays in your home. It's like part one, part of your belongings. It's part of your your collection. Um, and so, uh, you know, consider the case of like purchasing a DVD or music, you know an item of music um, for your for your movie collection. Um, you don't. We don't do that anymore. We we purchase access um, as, as discussed and access-based consumption. Um, but it's also, it's more than that. It's also like we're the, the kind of the goal of purchasing it is more about experiencing some experiencing that movie or song rather than the goal of, of owning it or having it. And uh, it's not that we never did that before. We, you know, we rent, we went on vacation and stayed in a hotel and we rented things occasionally. Um, but it's the, the trend is shifting such that we're, we're owning less and less uh, material, tangible things uh, than we did in the past. So speaking of trends, Dr. Morwich, the paper identifies three uh, what you call macro trends in marketing. Can you talk about those, please? Sure. Um, so the first would be growth of the sharing economy. And you could think that now we're engaging in any kinds of collaborative consumption, like <laughs> renting, reselling, lending, consuming things simultaneously, like many people are reading the same file or listening to the same music and resource pooling. And it's not that these things weren't present in our economy before. So people had libraries, people shared things. But now the difference here is that these platforms are mediating these kinds of transactions between strangers. And so what used to be public goods or used to be things that you shared with your friends are now things that we're using through this kind of exchange with other people through these technologically mediated platforms. Like you could think about a rideshare platform or you could think about, um, you know, a bicycle rental or, or renting an office from WeWork, right? Or renting clothes from Rent the Runway. And so through all these different kinds of cases, we can access things that we might not necessarily have wanted to spend before, right? The money on, um, you know, uh, fancy outfit for a wedding now you can rent that and um it's 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 not that there weren't places that you could rent clothes before but it's becoming much easier and we're using it for much more of our life the second is digitization of goods and services you could see that particularly with the current situation there's a exchange of analogs or sort of physical goods for these digital goods 
Um, streaming, for example, is now the most popular way to consume music. And we see this kind of diffusion of digital kinds of consumption through books, email, films, magazines, maps, news, and television. Like think about the last time that you opened a paper map, right? Uh, or the last time that you are sending letters, right? So most of our letters are exchanged for these kinds of digital communications. And so those are not necessarily the ones that people consider identity relevant, but the things that we, the kinds of media that, or the kinds of goods that we used to think about as cher holdings or cherished memories, like our books, our photographs, our videos, are now all digital. You may have thousands of photographs in your in your phone, whereas before, when you're taking um, pictures of the film, you may have thought very carefully about each picture and cultivated it and then looked at the negatives and stored those negatives. Now you may be unaware of all the, you may take 15 photographs of your family or your cat, right? And and they're all there in your phone and none of them really may be that meaningful to you. Uh, you just sort of pick the best one and then send it along and forget about it. And the last one is expansion of personal data. And so you could think about our interactions often, whether it was with government or with businesses, was often constrained to a record that was a single exchange, right? So we had a receipt and that was the data that existed about our behavior. And it was very hard to connect those. And now you could think about governments, firms all have incredibly identity relevant information about all facets of our lives, where we visited, what photographs and videos we've taken, what's our search history, what's our medical or even our genetic information. And so the, you can take, for example, um, as Professor Small mentioned, we used to have physical paper copies of our financial transactions, for example, our tax records, right? And now you might complete all of your taxes on a cloud-based platform and the firm owns that data and is selling it to others for you know, marketing purposes for loans, right? Or for credit cards. And so the question of who owns that kind of information is becoming increasingly relevant for consumers. And that ownership kind of tension between do firms own that information or do consumers own that information is being played out in really interesting kinds of policy kinds of arguments about what, what data should firms own? What data should consumers have rights to? Do we have a right to be forgotten? And so this is a more developing literature, but it's still a very important one and we wanted to tie into the paper and explore. But yeah, you're get, that gets into a whole other issues about privacy, transparency, accountability. Those, those are definitely emerging issues. So uh, I'm going to recap. You said the three trends are the growth of the sharing economy, digitization of goods and services, and the expansion of personal data, correct? Right. Yeah, and I, I think the word trend is key here because when you're when you're running through some of these examples, I just think about how 20 years ago, these things didn't even exist. It was a receipt. You go, you buy a, uh, you know, you go to the gas station convenience store, you buy a drink and a sandwich, you get a paper receipt. It doesn't get emailed to you. There's no one tracking where you are. Um, you, the idea that you would rent, a, let's say a luxury handbag was not only, um, unavailable, but it was objectionable. You know, there, there was this concept that you had to own something. So these are definitely trends. Um, so let's let's get into that that key takeaway for marketers from your paper. What are some of the things that marketers can, if, if psychological ownership is so beneficial in marketing, what can marketers do to preserve some of that? Uh, I'll start with you, Dr. Small. 
Well, I think it's important to start with an understanding of what kind of what are the underlying features of psychological ownership that are particularly meaningful and important to consumers. So uh, feeling in control, uh, being able to express who you are through the, the goods that, that you possess. So this very uh, seminal academic article in marketing titled Possessions and the Extended Self, which is all about how our possessions help define who we are and enable us to signal who we are to, to both to ourselves and, and to others in our social world, right? So everything from the type of car you drive to your brand of blue jeans is, 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 um, says something about uh, who you are. And so to answer your question about how marketers need to think about this, of course, it's going to vary a lot across uh, firms and, and product categories. Um, but marketers need to be thinking about ways to offer those benefits um, in other forms, right, um, in, as they shift to these, these new models and ways to, to retain psychological ownership. So can they find new ways to offer their consumers uh, choices over even when they're not, even when they're uh, uh, in an access-based consumption model where they're not going to be, say they're selecting a car for a rental or for a rideshare, um, can they still have choices over the features of that car so they feel more in control? Um, are there other opportunities for them to, to kind of express through they who express who they are through say um, social the, it, within these platforms where they're kind of creating profiles of themselves and interacting with other uh, consumers and firms? Um, so it, again, it's going to vary a lot, but I think the key the crux is for marketers to kind of recognize that those those are the, some of the key features that that are that provide value to consumers and to try to kind of creatively find ways to, to bring those back. Dr. Morwich, uh, can you add to that, please? Sure. So I would think, first of all, about what are the kinds of changes that are happening, and then how can we find ways to either address them, offset them, or channel them? And so, for example, we could think about the impermanence of these things, right? So if I am using an access-based good, or if I if I'm my data is I have access to my health data on my chart in the cloud, right? I could think about, well, what are ways to give consumers an extended feeling of permanence, right? So can firms guarantee access over an extended duration to that kind of experience? So if I'm uploading my data, that's my data for in perpetuity for, or for a number of years, right? Um, if we're losing the tangibility of material goods for these kinds of experiences, are there different ways that we can offer control that aren't necessarily physical, but they give us different kinds of control about the goods? So you could think about your music, for example, using a touchscreen is one way of giving people haptic control or a, a personal physical control over their music, right? So I can fast forward or rewind through my music physically. I can change the volume with my hands. Right. I can maybe control the rate and timing of different kinds of consumption. So if I want to listen to a podcast like this, I could speed it up or slow it down or rewind it to catch important kinds of moments. If I have a hard time deciding what's mine. Right. So, for example, in experiential consumption, when you're buying a trip from point A to point B in a rideshare like Uber or Lyft, it's ambiguous who owns what, right? So that's an experience. You're purchasing a ride, but what do you really own in that kind of context, right? And so giving people some sense of clarity about what they own. So, for example, if I'm renting a house on Airbnb, do you get information about your upcoming visit and what you what you're getting with your with your trip? So 
are there ways that we can sort of remind people of their usage history and all the kinds of experiences that they've had in these kinds of settings? Um, are there kinds of gamification that we can use to show people sort of their status through different kinds of programs, right? So you've listened to this song 10 times, or what are your top 10 songs on the streaming service? And so giving people some sense of a memory, connecting them to those experiences and a marker of having had them. And then you could think about, there are really important kinds of consequences here where a lot of a lot of the kinds of things that we used to think of as being goods that we owned are becoming commodities, right? So if, if I'm renting a car, there's a commodification to that. Or if I'm using a rideshare, I don't really care what brand of car I'm riding in. I just care about getting from point A to point B in comfort, right? And so brands have to start thinking about whether or not they want to engage in vertical integration to keep consumers caring about their brand. I may care more about if I'm riding an Uber or Lyft different kinds of um, economic or moral or values purposes than whether I'm riding in a Toyota or a Ford, right? And so brands have to think about becoming commodities in cases where they, they were once these really strong markers of consumer's identity. And so you could think about each of these kinds of threats are, are also giving rise to new kinds of opportunities. So in many cases, we're engaging in new kinds of ways of collaborative consumption with other people. And we have these communities of people consuming things that didn't exist before, right? And so in those kinds of cases, we're moving from mine to ours. And so can brands tie in to think about how do we get people to feel membership in a group of consumers? There's a lot of work in earlier in marketing, looking at these kinds of brand communities. And Harley Davidson is always touted as one where they were a firm that successfully built up a community around its products. Other brands may have to start to think about that kind of development and get consumers to think about their membership in a group rather than their use of a particular good. Yeah, as, you, as you're talking, uh, just all these different kinds of examples pop up in my head. Um, I'm thinking about, you know, the outdoor uh, clothing companies or, as you said, uh, the, the idea that there's still this sense of ownership in terms of do I want to ride in a Ford or do I want to ride in, I don't know, a Bentley, <laughs> if you can get that on Uber. Um, but let's let's talk about something else, too. When I was reading your paper, I was actually surprised when I came to this part that said that there are some instances where companies would actually benefit if their customers do not have a sense of ownership in the product. Dr. Morwedge, what what kind of instances are those? Well, we identify four in the paper uh, and I'll, I'll run through each and then give you an example. So the first is when changes in access rights are likely. The next is when consumers are the products, like lots of freemium kinds of services. The third is when it creates frictions in sharing markets. And the last is when service quality is inconsistent. So getting to this question of access rights, for example, in 2019, Microsoft ended sales of eBooks, and it also deleted and refunded all books purchased through that platform. So if I built this library, on Microsoft eBooks, right? It's suddenly gone and I get a check in the mail for what I purchased. And that kind of sudden change in access, if consumers do feel strong like psychological ownership may lead them to feel a sense of loss or a sense of anger when their access rights are revoked. And so when the when the catalog that, that firms are offering in terms of these access-based models are highly fluid, they may not want consumers to feel psychological ownership for something if it's going to disappear later on. The second case is when firms are 
using consumers as the product. And so when firms are profiting from mining and selling consumer personal data, they're going to benefit from cases in which consumers feel a little psychological ownership for that behavior online, for example. And so they may not want, they may not want, Amazon may not want you to think about all the data they have about all of the records of transactions that you've engaged in, or Google may not want you to think about your search history as something that you have a right to control, right? If that, if those kinds of services are monetized, firms profit when consumers don't feel like they have ownership rights, when they don't feel they should be compensated for their use. The third case would be when it creates frictions in sharing markets. So for example, if I feel really strong psychological ownership for a particular brand of car, whether it be BMW or Toyota or Honda or Ford, that may create frictions for Uber when they try to give me a substitute in their model uh, with a Hyundai, right? And so if you think about the, the these different kinds of goods need to be highly substitutable, in, encouraging ownership or feeling an ownership for any one of those goods may be deleterious for the firm because it's making leading consumers to search elsewhere for that kind of good, right? So if I really decide that I love BMW cars, I may look for a ride-sharing service that only features BMW. Or if I'm using Zipcar, for example, and they discontinue a particular brand that I really enjoyed using and I felt ownership for that brand, I may switch to a different service. And the last case is when service quality is inconsistent. So as Dr. Small had mentioned, this kind of endowment effect or feeling of psychological ownership has a value-enhancing effect. So we see the things that are ours through these rose-colored glasses. And so if I feel psychological ownership for something, I may have higher expectations for service performance or for the performance of that product. And so if firms have difficulty living up to that. We know that customer satisfaction is you know, performance minus expectations. And so if you're going to have variable kinds of performance, then it may not behoove you to have that kind of value enhancement that psychological ownership engenders. Dr. Small, this last question is for you. What is next for this line of research? I imagine for you, it intersects with your interest in business and psychology. So what are you going to study next? Oh, gosh. Um, many possibilities. Um, so I think, so, so we joke that, and, and use the term me-search, um, which refers to, the, you know, we study things that are self-relevant to us or that we're going through or experiencing. And so it seems um, that, you know, many new technologies as, as they, um, as they become normalized and become more prevalent. Um, I think it's really important for us to think about how they're shaping uh, consumption. The one thing we talk about in the paper is, is we're sort of putting the finishing touches on this paper over the summer as we were all uh, do, working from home, right, doing remote work. And so we were discussing, we discussed in the paper this example of how, how the, there's sort of a, a parallel between uh, the, the changing nature of work where we don't have like this physical, like, this is my office, right? This is the place I go for my work life versus my home life. Um, right. It's all becoming more more liquid just in the way that a lot of consumption is becoming more liquid. So, so that's just one example of the, the kinds of uh, things that 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 um, that we discuss in the paper and have thought about as 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 taking this to the to the next in, in a new direction. And and maybe Dr. Morowich wants to say more. I think a big question that we don't answer in the paper is looking at whether or not our notion of ownership will change as a result of these changing trends. And so are the kinds of cues that we used before, like physical control or touch um, or investing money in something or knowing a lot about it, 
are those kinds of cues that gave rise to a sense of ownership going to be replaced? And so the question of like, how are, what we feel is mine has for a long time tracked legal ownership. And this paper is looking at cases where there are divergences. And part of that is because, you know, for thousands of years, own, owning things were ways that people sort of expressed themselves or they built up their identity or their wealth or passed things on to their children, right? And so the question is, how malleable is that sense of mine? And will it res- how will it respond to these kinds of changes in our lives and in the economy? Those are some very provocative questions, and it'll be interesting to see how we evolve. And, and thank you for providing so much great information today. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can find more just like it on our website, Knowledge at Wharton, along with all our articles about the latest research in business. I'm Angie Bastiani. Thanks for listening. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.